Good morning to all the great Bible class students who meet with me at St. Joan of Arc. This is your weekly Bible lecture. I'm coming to you from my home office. My wife and I have uh, secured ourselves at home and are doing quite well. Thank you. Last week, I opened the spring quarter with our first lecture, and this week I'll deliver the second lecture, which will see us return to the Bread of Life discourse in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, picking up in verse 33. But as always, before we begin our time together, let's pause for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we find our way together to John chapter 6, I'll bring you up to speed about some of the comings and goings of the family. All the kids are well. All the grandkids are well. Although my two oldest daughters, the parents of all six of those grandkids, are uh, beside themselves in trying not only to continue to gain income for their families, they're both working in all-girl Catholic high school academies, but also, in addition to their online presence with their students, are trying to figure out how to homeschool two of their eldest children, respectively, and then dutifully entertain a rambunctious one-year-old, in the case of my oldest daughter, Jessie, and a very stubborn four-year-old, in the case of my daughter, Rebecca. But they're making do, and uh, there is light on the horizon. Uh, the other kids are still and gainfully employed, although some have had to take a pay cut or two along the way, but no worse for the wear. I'm in Chandler with my wife, and we're enjoying our time together, getting a lot of household projects accomplished. And God bless the governor, because I'm able to golf. And uh, I golf a couple of times a week, and I'm able then to get out on the bike paths of the city and also on some of the mountain bike trails as well. So since we're empty nesters, it's a little easier uh, for Diane and I than it is for our uh, quarantined children, four of whom who live in California. So having brought you up to speed, let's return to John chapter 6. And allow me to remind you uh, that John chapter 6 begins with the story of the multiplication of the loaves, a very important narrative. It's part of all four of the Gospels that make up the New Testament Gospel story. And that means that it was remembered and considered as important, for instance, as was the Passion narrative, the events from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, unique as well to the miracle of the multiplication of the bread is then that Jesus in all four Gospels uh, is remembered 
as the man who walked across the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And remember, we learned last week that in John's Gospel, we understand what motivated Jesus. It was not a self-serving miracle whatsoever. In John chapter 6 and verse 15, having just miraculously multiplied bread to feed as many as 10,000 people, Jesus, verse 15, knew that those people, were he to make his way through their villages on his way back to Capernaum, were going to come and carry him off to make him king by force. That's why he withdrew again to the mountain alone. He let the crowd then dissipate. The apostles sent in the boat, rowing against the wind, and his journey across the surface of the deep was intended to avoid the possibility of being acclaimed king by force. Additionally, as we saw last week as well, in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, he also intended, remember, to pass by them, which is a way of saying, reveal his divinity to them. That's why, as well, in verse 20, we noted that when Jesus was identified, he said to them in the boat, It is I, do not be afraid. And we made note of the fact that that translation of it is I is, in fact, the given name of God by God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in Greek, ego eimi. He announces himself as the Son of God and a divine figure. Well, the next day in John chapter 6, verse 22, the crowd that remained across the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not gone along with his disciples in the boat, but only his disciples had left. Other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they had eaten the bread when the Lord gave thanks. And so when, in verse 24, the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into boats and came to Jesus in Capernaum. Now again, Jesus understands what's motivating them. They want to see if this miracle of multiplication is going to continue manna-like in memory. And that's where we left off last week. In verse 31 of John chapter 6, Our ancestors, they say to Jesus, ate manna in the desert. They remember it was written, he, meaning Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them in reply, verse 32, Amen, amen, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. It was my Father who gave it then and who gives you the true bread from heaven now. And now I paraphrase the actual text. The actual text I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, semicolon. My father gives you the true bread from heaven, period. Meaning it was my father who provided the bread then, and I am the provision of my father now. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, hearing this, many in the crowd said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, well, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I told you that, although you have seen me, you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not reject anyone who comes to me. Because I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but rather to do the will of the one who sent me, and this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose anything, or anyone he gave me, but I, that, but that I should raise it, or him, or her, on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son, and believes in him, may have eternal life, and I shall raise him, and her, on the last day. Now, when he's speaking these words, Jesus sees, or hears, and others as well, that there were some Jews in that company who began to murmur among themselves about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Remember, that point of reference, the bread that came down from heaven, takes us back to the Exodus story, and following Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, where on a daily basis, God provided a miraculous substance from heaven that sustained the Israelite community for 40 years. And so they begin to murmur about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Is he claiming some sort of supernatural characterization that he and he alone has in relationship with his father? And they said, in response to this, is this not Jesus? He's the son of Joseph. Do we not know his father and mother? Again, these Jews murmuring would have been from Galilee and in Galilee from Nazareth. They were part of his discipleship group now, and they could remember that they grew up with Jesus and they knew his mother and his father. How then can he say, I have come down from heaven. This doesn't make any sense. In verse 43, Jesus answered them and said, Stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. It's written in the prophets, Isaiah chapter 54. They shall all be taught by God. Now that's an important point of reflection. In the prophets, the prophet Isaiah specifically, there is that hope at the end of time that then everyone will be taught by God. Until that time, everyone will be taught. Not everyone will pick up on the lesson. Jesus says, everyone who listens to my father and learns from him comes to me. If you read the scriptures, you would know that I am the fulfillment of them. Not that anyone has seen the Father, he says in verse 46, except the one who is from God, self-referentially, he, meaning Jesus, has seen the Father. Amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and he doubles down. I am the bread of life, and your ancestors did eat the manna in the desert, but every one of them died, not because they ate the manna, but of natural causes. But speaking about himself, this is the bread 
that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. It's a new supernatural substance. It's the bread of life. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, we pause here for a little lesson in Greek, because the word in the original Greek manuscript of the Gospel of John for the English word flesh is not a general word expressing the fact that we are all in common human beings. Rather, it's a very specific word, sarx, S-A-R-X, and it literally means the flesh that covers bone and sinew. It's a very visceral word. It's a word of powerful intent, not general, but specific. And he's going to use this word, that is John, in his gospel again and again and again, because that's what Jesus was saying. The bread that I will give for you to eat is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, we understand the significance of this use of the word sarks in the Gospel of John, the skin that surrounds bone and sinew, because in verse 52, the Jews, who were sympathetic to Jesus and were his disciples and had been fed miraculously the day before, quarreled among themselves instantaneously and began to say, how can this man give us his sarks, his flesh, to eat? Jesus hears that and says to them, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have life within you. For whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. To eat, to drink, to feed, all powerful verbs, right, that give you the sense that somehow Jesus is saying that you're going to have to cannibalize his body. In verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. And note that subtle point, your ancestors, not the ancestors of Jesus, because he's co-eternal with the Father, unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. Whoever eats this bread, the body of Jesus, will live forever. These things he said while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, remember the day after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men and others near Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Well, in verse 60, many of his disciples who were listening, disciples meaning students, said to him, this saying, these words, are hard. Who can accept them? The word hard there is a very interesting Greek word, and you'll understand it immediately when you hear it. In Greek, if you parse it out, it sounds 
as follows. This teaching is scandalous. Scandalous. This teaching is scandalous. How can you expect us to accept it? And verse 61, since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, does this shock you? You're shocked by this? What? Now watch. If you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. And remember, Jesus has not yet spoken of his passion. He's not yet revealed that he will be brutalized and subjected to a horrific death, a criminal on a cross because of the jealousy of religious leaders who convince Roman authorities that he should be crucified. So when he says, does this shock you? Well, you better be ready for something else that will shock you even more. Because you are going to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, but he's not going to ascend until he first dies, and he'll die before their eyes. And he says to them in verse 63, It is a spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The word flesh in verse 63 is not in the Greek manuscript the word sarx. It's rather a general reference to the human condition. We are all of the flesh, sins of the flesh. He says, it is the spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. Your human attempts to understand what I'm saying will always prove futile. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. I need to comment at the end of verse 63. It would be remiss of me if I did not. Jesus ends the bread of life discourse with these words. It is the spirit that gives life, while the flesh or the human way of consideration of these issues is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Some Christians read that verse and find an escape clause, imagining that Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't be uh, so upset. I know it sounds like what I've taught you is scandalous to feed on my body and to drink my blood if you want to have life within you. But I didn't really mean that. I meant what I taught you spiritually. And therefore, it's more symbol than reality. The problem is that would contradict everything else Jesus has said. And you'll see in a moment, it would never explain why many of his disciples are going to leave him. I'll remind you that in the exchange between Jesus and the woman at the well of Samaria, when in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, he tells that Samaritan woman 
The Father seeks such people to worship him. He then says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's the same Greek word. Spirit in John chapter 4 and here again in John chapter 6. They are synonymous. There is that sense that what Jesus is saying is exactly what they thought he was saying and they couldn't get their minds around it. And that's the key. It is the spirit that gives life. While the flesh is of no avail, human thinking will never allow you to come to this final understanding. The words I have spoken to you are spirit. They are of God. And that's why they're going to bring life. But there are some of you who do not believe, and we understand that. And in verse 66, as a result of this, many, not just a few, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him, no longer followed him. And Jesus didn't try to stop them, didn't say, wait a minute, you misunderstood what I was trying to say. Don't go. No, he turned to the 12. And he said, do you also want to leave? I'd understand if you did. It was Simon Peter who responded, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is to this point. We might not fully understand and comprehend what you've just taught, but to date, you've done pretty well by us. In verse 69, we have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God, and therefore we trust that the fullness of your teaching will be revealed at a later date. And Jesus was proud of them. He said, well, did I not choose you twelve? Yet is not one of you a devil, meaning an adversary, a Satan, someone who's going to make accusation? He was referring to Judas, the son of Simon the Iscariot. It was he who would, as we all know, betray him. At the Last Supper, he was one of the twelve. Now, after this, Jesus moved about within Galilee, but he did not wish to travel in Judea because he knew there were Jewish religious authorities there who were plotting an attempt to kill him. Now, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles in the fall was near. So his brothers, and by that we would mean his cousins, said to him derisively, Come on, man, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. That is, your disciples in Judea and in Jerusalem. They chide him, no one who, no one works in secret, if he wants to be known publicly. If you do these things, manifest yourself then to the world. For his brothers, in this case, did not believe in him. Now Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but the time is always right for you, no worries. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to it that its works are evil. And remember, that world is the world of Judaism and its religious leadership in Jerusalem. So you, verse 8, go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. And after he said this, they left for Judea and he stayed on in Galilee. Now, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he himself also went up, but not openly, but as it were, as best he was able in secret. 
as he arrived in Jerusalem, he heard on the grapevine that those Jewish religious leaders were looking for him at the feast and were saying and had been saying for a couple of days, where is he? And there was considerable murmuring about him in the crowds. Some said, I don't know where he is, but he is a good man. While others said, no, no, on the contrary, he misleads the crowd. Still, no one spoke openly about him because they were afraid of the Jewish religious authorities and the possibility of uh, reprisal associated with that relationship. When the Feast of Tabernacles was nearly half over, it's an eight-day feast, so four days in, Jesus went up into the temple area and, appearing, began to teach. Now, the Jewish religious leaders were amazed at what he was doing and asked the question, how does he know Scripture without having studied? Now, read between the lines. How does he know the Word of God, and how does he control its message when he hasn't studied with us? He's not an Ivy Leaguer. He didn't go to Stanford. He doesn't have a theological degree. And yet, he amazes us with his insights. Well, Jesus answers them and says, My teaching is not my own, but it is from the one who sent me. Whoever chooses to do his will shall know whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but whoever speaks the glory of the one who sent him is truthful and there is no wrong in him. Remember the Middle Eastern educational system, much different than our own. So if you acquire a PhD degree, let's say in New Testament studies, as two of my friends, Dr. Stephen Notley and Dr. Brad Young, were able to do, by the end of your academic course of study, you will be expected to know everything that your scholar mentor knew, so that when your scholar mentor dies, his entire knowledge base resides in you. And therefore, when you teach, you teach in the name of your scholar mentor, which is what Jesus is doing here. Whoever speaks on his own seeks his own glory, but whoever seeks the glory of the one who sent him, who teaches in his name, is truthful, and there is no wrong in him. He goes on to say, did not Moses give you the law? And he did, yet none of you keeps the law, and so why are you trying to kill me? You've got your own set of problems. Now, they hear this, and many in the crowd say, you are possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, well, remember back in John chapter 5, when Jesus on the Sabbath cured the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda? I performed a single work, and we understand in verse 21 on the Sabbath, and all of you are amazed because I did that on the Sabbath. I restored ambulatory ability to a man whose life was not threatened. But Moses gave you circumcision. Well, in the narrative of the book of Genesis, in the storyline of the life of Abraham, and Jesus says, not that it came from Moses, but rather from the patriarchs, meaning Abraham. And so if a male Israelite is born and the eighth day of that child's life falls on the Sabbath, you circumcise him on that day. If a man can receive circumcision 
on a Sabbath, which is an act of medical necessity based on the teaching of Genesis chapter 17, but it's not a life-saving medical procedure. If a boy, an infant male, can receive circumcision on a Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a whole person, that man paralyzed for 38 years, well, on a Sabbath? Stop judging by appearances but judge justly. So, hearing this, some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem said, is he not the one they are trying to kill? But look, he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Could the authorities have realized that he is, in fact, the Messiah? But we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth in Galilee. And they believe that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Well, Jesus heard this and cried out in the temple area as he was teaching and said, You know me and also know where I am from. Yet I did not come on my own. But the one who sent me, whom you do not know, is always true. I know him because I am from him. And he sent me. So, hearing this, they tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand upon him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd, during that middle part of the Feast of Tabernacles, began to believe in him because they were asking themselves the following question. When the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man has already performed? I mean, when you add it all up, the evidence ways in his favor. Well, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring about Jesus to this effect. And the chief priests in verse 32, and the Pharisees sent guards to arrest him. So Jesus said, knowing that this is their intent, I will be with you only a little while longer, and then I will go to the one who sent me. He's beginning to prepare them for his passion. You will look for me, but not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So the Jews, hearing this, not understanding what he meant, said to one another, where is he going that we won't find him? Surely he's not going into the dispersion among the Greeks. He's not going to go and bring his message to the Gentiles. Is that a possibility? They're not sure. What is the meaning of his saying, you will look for me and not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. They're mystified. And then, on the last and greatest day of the feast, in the morning, at about 10 a.m., during a ceremony which is evocative of the deserts providing water so that the land can bloom, priestly representatives are sent down from the Temple Mount to the Pool of Siloam, and they collect from that pool vessels of water that are carried back up to a set of steps. And from the height of that set of steps, the water is poured out and it cascades down the steps toward the east, symbolically into the Kidron Valley, which runs ultimately into the Dead Sea. It's a ritual as part of the festival or feast of Tabernacles that remembers the promise of the prophet 
Ezekiel in his vision that when all things are restored, fresh water will flow from the altar and will make the salton waters of the Dead Sea fresh again. And this ritual is repeated seven different times. And everyone gathers in anticipation to witness this wonderful religious symbol. And as this is going on, Jesus stood up and exclaimed, so that all could hear, let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Now, he said this, John reminds us, in reference to the Spirit, that those who came to believe in him were to receive, Acts chapter 2. There was, of course, no Spirit yet, no indwelling of the Spirit yet, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here's a little preview of coming attractions. In John chapter 14, Jesus will speak about the Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 15 and following, if you love me, he will say to his apostles at the Last Supper, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another counselor, another helper to be with you always, the Spirit of Truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it. But you know it because it remains with you in the person of Jesus. And here it is. And will be in you, for I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. That spirit, the advocate, the counselor, the parakletos, will be in you. And that's the event that we call Pentecost, AD 32, Acts chapter 2. So I return then to John chapter 7. He said this in verse 39, in reference to the spirit that those who came to believe in him were eventually to receive. There was, of course, John reminds us, at this time, no spirit, no indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet, because Jesus had not yet been glorified, so the spirit that would be in them, that is, John 14, verse 16, was currently just with them. Now, some in the crowd who heard these words at that moment of heightened spiritual sense cried out, this is truly the prophet. This is the man that Moses promised us in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. This is the Messiah. But others said that can't be. The Messiah will not come from Galilee, will he? And Jesus is from Galilee. He's the Nazarene. He's the Galilean. Does not, they say, Scripture speak clearly that the Messiah will be of David's family and come from Bethlehem, the village of where David lived. These were folks unaware of the circumstances, unique and unusual, surrounding the birth of Jesus, which actually took place in the village of Bethlehem, the village where David lived. And we know uh, that Joseph had kin who lived in Bethlehem. That's why he needed to go there in the Gospel of Luke to register for the census. And Mary may have as well had genealogical relation to the family line of David. She had kinfolk in the persons of Elizabeth, her cousin, the mother of John the Baptist. Well, irregardless, a division occurred, verse 43, in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands 
on him. Remember, earlier in this chapter, verse 32, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent guards to arrest him. Well, the guards returned to the chief priests and the Pharisees in verse 45, who asked them, why did you not bring him in? And the guards answered, because never before has anyone spoken like this man. Well, the Pharisees wondered and responded, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or any of the Pharisees believed in him? Why would they say in defense of their inability to arrest Jesus? Never before has anyone spoken like this one. It means that his speaking style and his persona and his presence was so large and he grew so many people around him. They would close ranks surrounding him and there's no possible way to apprehend him in broad daylight. The, the, the crowds of people forming a human shield wouldn't allow for that. Now, this crowd, they continue in verse 49, which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, remember he from John chapter 3, one of their members who had come to him earlier, remember in John chapter 3 at night, and was given a special audience, said to them, Does not our law condemn a person before it first hears him and finds out what he is doing. And they answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee also, are you? Look and see that the prophet, not no prophet, but the prophet does not arise from Galilee. So that would eliminate the possibility in their mind that Jesus could be the Messiah. Now we're still in the midst of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want to draw your attention in chapter 8, first to verses 12 and following, 12 to 20, because this will complete the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate Tabernacles. Because in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, that is the people later that evening, when he cried out, I am the light of the world. On the last and greatest evening of the festival, gigantic candelabra are constructed. They rise from the Temple Mount platform 40 feet in the air, and each one has four pots on top into which oil is placed and then wicks, and they are then lit, and the wick draws the oil, and the entire Temple Mount is illuminated with a glory that dispels the darkness. It was said that in the time of Jesus, when this particular ceremony was engaged in, you could see the illumination of the city of Jerusalem at a distance of five miles to the south in Bethlehem. So it's at that moment at the end of this last day, the greatest day of the feast, which began with the water ritual on the temple steps, that for the final time they light these four candelabra and when they're lit, Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, the Pharisees hear this and challenge him and say, you know, Jesus, you testify your, on your own behalf. So your testimony cannot be verified. You say, but who else says this about you? Jesus answered. And said to them, even if I do testify 
on my own behalf, my testimony can be verified because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge only by appearances, but I do not judge anyone. And even if I should judge, my judgment is valid because I am not alone, but it is I and the Father who sent me. You just refuse to listen to the testimony of my Father, which is evidence, remember, in the signs he's able to display, in the miracles that occur day after day, in the power of his teaching. In verse 17, even in your law, your law, not the law of Jesus, it is written that the testimony of two men can be verified. I testify on my behalf, and so does the Father who sent me. Now they said to him in reply, well, wait a minute, where is your father? We, we know that you have a relationship with a man named Joseph, an adoptive father, but he's not your biological father. And this is a way they cast dispersions on the honor status of Jesus, that you are an illegitimate child because no one's ever really seen your father. But Jesus was ready for them and answered, you know neither me nor my father. For if you knew me, you would know my father also. And he spoke these words while teaching in the treasury in the temple area at night, the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So that brings the Feast of Tabernacles to an end. But we have this wonderful story that will bring this class to an end with today. In John chapter 8, it's a free-floating story, sometimes called a pericope, which means that John knew of the story and didn't know exactly where to place it. So we have it here in John chapter 8 in verses 1 to 11, but it could really be in any place in the gospel because it stands on its own. Now, early in the morning, the narrative begins in John chapter 8. He, meaning Jesus, arrived again in the temple area, and all the people started coming to him, men first, women at a later hour after dealing with the needs of their respective households. And he's a religious scholar and a rabbi, so he sat down and he taught them. Just then, some scribes and Pharisees brought a woman to him who had been caught in the very act as they claimed of adultery and made her stand in the middle of those who circled around Jesus. Now imagine her, terrorized, disheveled, barely clad, surprised, in shock, standing, surrounded by the prying eyes of men she's never met before. And they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Again, they've given their ruse away. Because where is her paramour? Where is her partner? You don't commit adultery alone. Where, where is the man? It's a setup. And Jesus knows that. Now they say to him in challenge, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Do we go forth with that pronouncement? And by the way, it is found in the law of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, again, 
it's on the books, but not necessarily enforced. More as a deterrent than anything else. But here it is. I have to be honest. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, if a man is discovered lying with a woman who is married to another, they both shall die. The man who is lying with the woman as well as the woman, thus shall you purge the evil from Israel. That's adultery. And adultery destroys families because marriages are typically arranged. And so it sets the bar very high in regard to the honor of the marital union. And if that act is breached, then the penalty will fall upon both parties. That's what they're referring to in verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, John reminds us in verse 6, they said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. The genius of Jesus, then, is that he's going to take all of the focus and attention off of that poor woman in shock, surrounded by all of these men, by bending down and beginning to write on the ground with his finger. What he writes is of absolutely no consequence. The fact that he bends down and draws their attention away from her to himself, and they're fascinated by what he might be writing, is the point. He buys some time for this woman to collect herself, to, to cover herself, to, to put her hair up, any sort of action that would accord her some sort of honor. But when they continued asking him, he straightened up. And he shocked them all when he said, I've come to a juridical decision. Yes, we're going to stone her. We're going to go forth. We're, we're going to do what you wanted to do to her based on the reading, your reading, of Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22. But on one condition. Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And there's not a man there alive then in that time period who would ever pick up a stone with intent to hurl it at her because in doing so would be saying to the others, I am without sin. That, that would be scandalous. And the man would be ridiculed as a result. And after saying that, again, he doesn't want anyone looking at her. Jesus again bent down and wrote on the ground. Now in response, they all went away one by one beginning with the elders first. And so he was left alone with the woman before him. If they were intending to stone this woman, each one of them would have a stone in their hand. All of them would have to participate in the stoning, willing each one to throw a stone with the purpose of driving her off the edge of a precipice. You would never know what stone effectively produced the fall, but the fall was to be fatal. If one single person of those assembled drops a stone, the sentence is therefore commuted. And the elders were the first to drop the stones, and the younger men followed their example. The sentence was not to be carried out. And they began to leave. They'd been bested by Jesus. And so he was left alone with the woman before him, and he straightened up. And he spoke to her, and you have to understand, without looking at her. He's honoring her. He's giving her an opportunity to collect herself. 
Because he says to her, my dear, which is how we translate the word woman here from the original Greek, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She looks around, no one, sir. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. So you go. And from now on, don't sin in this way any more. Now, that brings us to the end of our time together this week, nearly the end of our 50 minutes of allotment. Let's close with a word of prayer, and I'll look forward to continuing with you in John's Gospel, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 8, next week. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We pray that in this time of trial and time apart, that we can grow closer to family members, to intimates in our community, and to you through prayer and through our participation as we are able in the sacramental life of the church. Be with us, bless us, and watch over us. Bless our ministers, our priests, our deacons as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And until you hear me next week, and I do hope you will, never forget what a great student you are. Good day and God bless.